back for another episode this week with our friend Vivek Gowry. I hope I said that right. That's really how we start the episode, making sure we get his name correct. But a really interesting episode. I, I feel like I learned a lot about him, but also I feel like I need a glossary of engineering terms, or maybe we need to supply one for, for folks at the end of this episode. Yeah, he, I enjoyed it because he seems like a very, th- or is a very thoughtful person. So whether he was talking about engineering specs for a laptop or about uh, you know something he learned from his parents, I, I felt like the way he was talking, I got insight into how he processes that information and how thoughtful he is about it. So I re- really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that too, especially in his answer at the end about a meaningful life. I thought that that showed a lot it actually showed a lot of his engineering mindset in that answer as well in that he, to your point, he thinks a lot about how do decisions that I make, what are, what are the downstream effects of those decisions? Or when I make any single decision, how does that affect the larger project or in this case, his life or for the answer that he gives towards the end? I, I, I think that there's some, some real similarities in understanding his engineering mindset and his answer to what, what makes a meaningful life. So I, I enjoyed that as well. Yeah, I really appreciated his answer. The overrated, underrated section I also thought was especially good good today. He's such a car guy that it's really fun to ask him about car stuff. Um, hearing him talk about his masters in electric cars, I mean... I, I couldn't get into the preschool for electric cars. So it's, you know, he's, he's just operating on a different level. So with that, let's get to our conversation with Vivek. The story that I was told is that I could identify cars before I could read them. I'd like to welcome in our guest this week, Vivek Gowry. Did I say your name right, Vivek? I should know this. Yeah, I mean it's. It's I'm, not Indian. An embarrassing way to right, start an episode. What an embarrassing way to start an episode. <laughs> <by the way. laughs> Let's call it good enough. Well, I think I think I have a way that American people say my name and a way that uh, Indian people say my name, and they're different. Well, clearly, so what I is said considered it right like is in different. A very boring white person way, and I would love to know the correct way of saying it. It's technically Vivek Gowry, um, but it just, it's interesting when Americans try to say it that way, it ends up sounding very foreign. So I've just like reconciled it to Vivek or Vivek, just anything that gets the consonants and we'll get the vowels, uh, you know, whatever works. I got it. Well, I can call you Vivek from from now on as long as that's as long as that's good enough. Um, but thank you so much for, for making time for this. We're super excited to have you. I'm personally really interested in this conversation because you represent, for me, a person in my life who I feel like I know well, but I don't know a lot of the details about. And so I'm really excited to just learn a bit more about you. So thank you so much for making time for this. Yeah, Absolutely. Super excited to be here. I wanted to start in what I think is an interesting place, but again, I'm, I'm going to be learning a lot today. So I wanted to start with your educational background because I think, and you can correct me here, but I think you were like a boy genius. And I would love to hear what your educational background is. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely not a boy genius, right? I definitely wasn't. Um, I, let's see, started out pretty normal, went to a Montessori school through second grade, and then went to like public elementary school after that, right? And public middle school with a brief sojourn into uh, a Catholic school, which is kind of one-off interesting experience. Um, But... At the end of middle school, I 
ended up going into something called uh, the early entrance program at the University of Washington, um, which meant that I skipped all of high school. I did one year of kind of prep classes in this hyper accelerated uh, environment with, you know, call it 15 other uh, eighth, ninth graders uh, to then enter the University of Washington as a, as like a full freshman undergrad at the age of 14. That is insane. <laughs> Does that, what, I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah. So how did you even qualify for that to begin with? So that's an, that was interesting because between eighth and ninth grade, my family was moving from Eastern Washington to the Seattle area. Um, and the school district that I was in was middle school was sixth through eighth grade. And then high school was nine through 12. And so I was like, I'm done with middle school. The school district we were moving into was junior high, which was seven through nine. And then high school was 10 through 12. And I was like, I am not going to a junior high, right? Like I am only going to I'm a school. big kid. I'm a big kid now. <laughs> yeah. This is like 13 year old me being like, no, no, I'm, I'm done. Um, so we went about trying to figure out how to skip ninth grade, right? What is the bare minimum of high school credits you need? And through you know, various math credit. I think I had like two or three math uh, high school credits and maybe one or two from somewhere else. But we cobbled it all together. And it was like, if you take this summer class offered by this like young scholar program at, at UW, um, you'll get almost, you'll get to like five and a half. And really it's six to be a sophomore in high school. But, you know, five and a half, you'll make it up somewhere along the way. Call it good. And so to get into those programs, you needed to take like the ACT or the SAT and write an essay and stuff like that. So I did all of that. And basically that program or that department at UW also ran this early entrance program. They basically looked at the test scores and the resume and then were like, oh, you know, you should also consider applying for the early entrance program. My mother did this without really telling me, or maybe she told me and I just wasn't paying attention. But at some point we're like driving up to Seattle for an interview, like for like a full day of interviews. And I asked my mom when we were driving up to Seattle, it was like a three hour drive. I'm like, why, like how serious can this summer program be? It's like a three month summer class. Why do they need a full day of onsite interviews? This is insane. And she was like, no, no, this is to skip high school. And I was like, oh, that's, different. That's like, that's a very different thing. Um, so, you know, I kind of got applied for it and then I went for this interview. You talk to some of the students that are in that program currently talk to, you know, the faculty, they get to talk to you and find out if, you know, your, um, kind of temperament and mentality fits, or if you feel like you would fit well in the program and then they give you a yes or no. So a couple of weeks after that, they said, you know, you're admitted. And then that's when I kind of had to decide, like, is this a thing I actually want to do? Yeah. Were you, were you excited about that, about skipping high school or, or not? I, I guess I was, it was, I mean, I don't know. I was 13. I didn't, I didn't know any better. <laughs> um, it just makes it all the more crazy to me that you're deciding, should I go to high school or should I go to college when you're 13 years old? Yeah, I mean that was like that was essentially the decision. And I was kind of like I don't know. I mean it's 4 years of school is 4 years of school. So why not do, just take one <laughs> of the 4 years out? What 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 were you like as a as a 13-year-old? Were you in any way shape or form sort of a more mature 13-year-old or more prepared for college? I don't think so like i i think i was just a normal 13 year old kid right like i liked tennis and basketball and racing games on the computer like i was good at math i couldn't write to save my life i 
you know, typical, just a kid. So, so you made, you made this decision to, to go to university of Washington. You're starting college as a, as a 14 year old. What, what was, what was that even like being surrounded by 18 year old, 19 year olds? Cause that's a pretty different, that's a pretty significant age gap between being a freshman, what would be a freshman in high school and a freshman in college. Yeah. I, it's interesting because the University of Washington's a huge university. And when you go into all of these freshman level science and math classes, they're like 700 person lectures in this ginormous auditorium. So you're granted a little bit of anonymity. And I think that first couple of years, it really helps um, because you don't stand out or like there's just so many people that you can't really stand out. Um, and, you know, there's always like some people that you meet along the way that are like, oh, interesting. You're 14. Anyway, do you want to help me on the, on homework or do you want help on homework or do you want to be in a study group together? And then that's about it. Right. Um, and at the time, like everyone is too young to go to bars and things like that. I think the only nuance was that I was living at home because I wasn't old enough to live in the dorms. But other than that, it was, you're just another student, just any other undergrad. Right, right. I'm curious how that experience of wanting to blend in versus stand out has played out in your life since. Because as I know you now, and I think some some of these things are things I want to ask about, but you know, you're a engineer, you love fast cars, you know, you're, you like in some ways to be a little bit flashy. And I say that in a positive, in a positive way, but that strikes me as a pretty different place to be than, you know, a 14 year old in college, just kind of hoping not to get noticed in some ways. So I'm wondering if that's, something that you're, if that anonymity versus standing out is something that you think about now. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I feel like as, um, kind of a, a first generation child of immigrants, like there's some amount of assimilation that I've always had, right. Even from when I was three or four years old, I remember one conversation I had with my dad and I, I think I was about four at this time, but I told him that I wanted to speak in English at home and not in our native language because it would help me be American. Right. And so to some extent that um, fitting in or not standing out has just always been there. Uh, the age thing in college, I think is just a, it's that kind of feeling just in a different context. Um, the standing out thing is interesting because it's, it's true. Um, some of my interests are definitely on the flashier side. Um, and my choice in colors and all of that personal style uh, does tend to, to stand out a little bit more. Um, and I guess I never really considered it that way. Like, it's just, I, I like the things I like and they just happen to be that way. Um, but yeah, you're naturally, you're naturally swaggy is what you're saying. <laughs> no, I think I just really like bright yellow. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> basically the same thing. Basically the same thing. Don't let me put words in your mouth. That's fine. No, that, that, that's cool. And it's interesting that you drew that back to being the son of immigrants because I would love to hear more about what that was like. I assume that there was some tension there, right? Of what it means to have an identity from where your family is from and also to have an identity as belonging where you are currently 
and I wonder if you can speak to if there was ever a time or instances where that that tension existed for you. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I, I grew up in a very rural part of Washington state, right? It's, it's very, uh, white church going conservative, small town America. Um, and I think being there pre nine 11 and post nine 11 were pretty different. Right. And I think even as a, as a 10 year old, you could kind of tell, um, just having a different skin tone and, and being a, a market outsider, uh, people looked at you or treated you a, a little bit differently. Um, and obviously politics and everything kind of shifted, uh, after that, but that I think was one of the tensions growing up. I think after that, you know, there's always going to be the tensions of the ideals that you grow up in, in the U S and kind of the freedoms that your friends get and that, you know, you are used to are not necessarily, uh, aligned to the way that your parents grew up and thus how they think you should be right. And, and balancing those aims are always going to be there. Um, whether that's, you know, studies or relationships or any of that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's interesting that even as a 10 year old, you could feel, could feel that tension and that sea change, so to speak, of just what the environment was giving you after 9-11. I'm sure that that must have that must have affected you in some way as again someone trying to navigate the challenge of what you're getting from your family and what you're also trying to do just to be a normal kid going to school making friends all that yeah and it's interesting some of the stuff you just saw happen in the moment and you didn't really understand what was happening but you're like oh okay this is the new normal um but then you think about it later and you're like, oh, I like now you understand the context behind it. Yeah. Was was there anything that happened that I don't want to say had a lasting effect, but that but that shaped how you see the world in any meaningful way? Um, I think one of the most distinct uh, memories I have from that was shortly after 9-11, my mom had a medical practice at the time and, uh, a good number of her patients switched to other physicians. And I remember my mom coming home and complaining, not to me, but like, you know, conversations with my dad and, and things like that. I just hear it, but you know, some guy from some other country, from, from some other religion, flew a plane into a building. Well, like I'm, I'm a doctor. Like what, what, what are what they going that, to gain by switching yeah. away from this practice? And it's, I think it was just that concept of of we are outsiders, right? And at least in, in that environment, we were very clearly, uh, labeled as such. Um, that I think was something that maybe I didn't really internalize it then, but was something that, uh, I think when Trump was elected and like that entire lead up to that was also something that I was like, it just brought a lot of that back. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that, that it makes sense that something like that would be obvious to you even as a young kid, because in that environment and then sort of feeling it in a, on a, on a family front, it's it. I I certainly didn't have 
the exact same experience, but to hear you describe it, it sounds like all of those factors that we were discussing sort of forming in, in that exact type of experience. I, I wanted to jump ahead, actually, because from this background, from going to UW, I only knew you, you know, once you were, once we met in, on, on the West Coast, but I wanted to hear how you actually got there and what actually happened from you being, you know, 14 and obviously finishing, finishing college a few years later to ending up on, on the West Coast at all. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I spent a majority of my life on the West Coast, right? Washington State kind of from the time I was four through the end of college, which was 2012. Yeah, 2012. Um, so I think I spent a couple of years in the middle in, in Chicago doing master's research, uh, at, uh, Argonne national labs on electric vehicles, but in kind of the later stages of undergrad and throughout grad school, I started working for, uh, a tech blog or I guess a, a tech review website, um, writing about laptops and tablets and cell phones. And so it was just like a side job. I like computers as much as I like cars uh, or almost as much as I like cars. And so it was just like a natural thing, right? I was always trying to get the the latest and greatest in terms of computers and things like that. And so when I found out that there was a way that companies would send them to me for free and then I would get paid to use them, I was like, oh, this is, this is an optimization. Um, so I did that through uh, through the through school and through that process, I met uh, the CEO of a company called Razer, who made gaming peripherals, mice and keyboards, but decided to do a very called ballsy thing and build a gaming laptop. Um, and they were kind of pushing the boundaries on what that was, but building a computer ends up being a, a fairly capital intensive business. And so that was, it was a risky move for them, right? That was like, uh, we're betting the company on this. Um, I love the computer, spent a lot of time talking with uh, Min and, and his engineering lead at the time and, and so on and so forth. And he liked the review that I wrote so much that at the end of, undergr or at the end of grad school, he offered me a job and it, turned out that there was no job opening. They just invented a job. It was like, you're smart, you know about laptops, you have an engineering degree, we'll figure it out. And so out of school, I went to go work for Razor can I, can uh, in I ask, San Francisco. Can I ask what you wrote? Like what, what did you write that caught, caught his eye? Yeah, so the, the style of, of reviews that we, we used to write at Anantech were extremely in-depth. Um, so this one was something like 9,000 words, uh, a lot of call it in-depth, uh, heavily systematic, uh, methodological testing. So I maybe hopefully not a word I just made up, um, but just very repeatable, rigorous testing, um, and analysis as to why various design choices were made. Like it's a very, you know, technical engineering centric tech website. Um, most of the editors on staff had engineering backgrounds or uh, were working at uh, tech hardware companies kind of thing. And so this was one where some of the things that I had found out in the process of testing were things that they actually didn't know about the platform that they had shipped. Like Razer built this laptop and found out stuff about what they had built through my review. Wow. Or it was some of the analysis that I had done, like, you know, here are the design compromises that were made. I understand why they did these things. Right. And and here is why they did those things. As opposed to, you know, you look at an Engadget or a Verge or kind of a more superficial review will just be like, oh yeah, this this laptop has loud fans or doesn't have a fast processor or, or something, right? 
it's just not having a technical understanding of why certain trade-offs are made in, in a product. And so I think that was kind of the, the basis of, of what was interesting to them. Right. So you basically impressed the CEO sufficiently by essentially telling him more about his product than he even knew. Yes. And <laughs> being able to articulate that in a way that someone who wasn't an engineer uh, could get. Right. Right. Which is to say taking a very complex, what I presume were complex concepts and distilling them down into relatively simple language. Yeah. So the CEO reads your review, identifies you as an interesting person, essentially, makes up a job that doesn't have any clear directive, but he just knows we got to get Vivek in, in, in our, in our building. What, what, what happens next? Like, did you show up and just kind of ask, Hey, what do you want me to do? Or how did, how did that start to evolve? Yeah. So the, the engineering lead who, who ran the San Francisco office, uh, was a very, very talented engineer. And he served as my mentor for the first number of years of my career. I was exceptionally lucky to work for him. But he was basically like, I'm going to put you on every part of this system, right? Whatever next generation laptop we're building, I am going to put you on every aspect of it so that you can, one, understand what the challenges are, and two, just learn about what it takes to do that well. And so at the end of this, you have an understand, just a broad understanding of what it takes to make a good laptop from every aspect, right? And, you know, part of being a good engineer is understanding all of the design compromises you make along the way, right? And every discipline will have its own objective that pulls in a specific direction. But in the end, you have like one call it ground product truth, that this is the set of choices that will result in the best computer or the computer that most faithfully executes the vision that we intend to. Is, is that sort of just going into, because now I'm fascinated by this idea of how do you make a laptop, but is that just basically starting with a perspective, with a opinion? essentially or is that too sim simple a way of putting it no that's a that's a really good way of putting it is like having been around a, like having evaluated a lot of laptops you understand what is good what is bad and with each one you know you think about what you would have done differently and so then when you are put in the environment of okay now you get to make the choices you get to do the things differently. So And so that was a really exciting place to be as like a 21-year-old. Yeah, that's that's a sounds like a a heaping amount of responsibility that they that they that they trusted you with. So what was your opinion? What was your perspective that you that you brought? Yeah, I think so Razer is a very gaming centric company. And so like my ground truth was always performance and anything you could do to push the boundaries on performance or, you know, can you hack display calibration by, you know, doing a call, let's call it something unorthodox, but could get you a 90% great out of box calibration for $0. Right. You can spend a lot of money to do it really, really well, or you can spend zero dollars to do it 90% as well. And, you know, just figuring out how to push the boundaries. And the good thing is it's a startup, right? It's not Dell. And so out of the box ideas that save money are welcomed. Also, you know, putting a 21 or 22 year old in charge of your entire like next year product roadmap. It's like, Oh yeah, you're the engineering lead for all of these things. And I'm like, that's not the kind of thing that happens at a big company. 
Um, so I was, yeah, I, I got very lucky in that I was able to execute my vision for products, uh, and be kind of be empowered to do so. If you will. Have, have there been moments in that experience where you kind of caught yourself going, Whoa, I shouldn't be doing this or wow. I'm sort of out over my skis or has that not been the case? I don't think so. I mean, I think there is, you know, just at a premise level, I'm like, yeah, this is like a real company doesn't do this kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we're here, so we're going to make it happen. There's obviously always places where, you know, you know that there are places like avenues of improvement, but there's just in shipping a product, you have to call it good, right? At some point, you always have to call it good. And retrospectively, you can kind of, like every product launch, you kind of have to look back and see, okay, you know, I didn't do this thing well, or really this fan curve should have been optimized slightly differently. You know, just every product will always have that. And so just continually learning and applying those learnings to the next product. Because um, that, that makes a ton of sense just because from your start as someone reviewing these laptops, of course, you're going to take a super critical eye to one that you built yourself from scratch. So I'm, that doesn't surprise me, but I am curious about almost the flip side of that initial question of have there been times where you've kind of exceeded your own expectations or surprised yourself with what you were capable of? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely been a couple of things where I didn't expect a product to ship, <laughs> right? Like, it's just like, the thing that we tried to do was way too ambitious. We have no business doing this. And then somehow in the end, it all comes just comes together and ships. I think there's been two or three of those. Thankfully, not every launch. That would, that would be exceptionally stressful. But uh, definitely a couple. So can you just describe, I feel like we have a rough picture of it, but where, what is your role now? I assume it's larger than even what sounds like a pretty large role when you first started. So can you describe kind of what, what you're in charge of now? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. So I was at Razor for six years. Um, when I left, I led all of hardware engineering for our uh, cell phone hardware group, I reported it into our CEO. And then I decided I had, had enough of, of cell phones and wanted to go back to laptops. Uh, so I joined a company called NVIDIA, uh, which is a, a semiconductor company in the graphics space, uh, really in the everything space, but let's call it best known for graphics. I lead product management for our gaming and creator laptop business. So everything high-end, high-performance uh, consumer laptops. So you basically just get to keep building laptops from scratch, huh? So this is a little different. It's building the chips that go into laptops. Um, and then working with, you know, the Razors and the Dells, Alienwares of the world to turn those into actual computers. So giving, you know, design rules, but also, you know, guidance on this is what we think laptops should be um, in the world. And it's interesting because I think something like 98% of gaming laptops use NVIDIA graphics cards. So I've, I've gone from, you know, having a lot of influence over, call it three laptops, to having a good portion of influence on the most important part of 150 gaming laptops, right? That, that so are used by millions, millions and millions of people. Exactly. And so you get to just push an entire industry forward, uh, which is super exciting. So sticking with the point that you made earlier, now that you're in this role, which is less intense, intensely linked to any individual laptop, but more intensely 
linked to all gaming laptops at the same time. What is your, you mentioned before that part of what makes a product what it is, is having a perspective. And so what is the perspective that you're now bringing given your position in the ecosystem now? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think in different parts of the market, you are looking for different experiences slightly. Um, I think the goal across the board is to provide a good gaming experience, but also a good laptop experience, right? So, you know, you think back to 10 years ago and gaming laptops were these huge, heavy monstrosities, right? Hot, loud, terrible battery life, can barely fit them in a backpack, things like that. And, and now we've moved into a space where, you know, even the, the biggest of gaming laptops are, are really fairly portable. Um, and so thinking through what an improved experience looks like at $700 versus $1,500 versus $3,000 is it's different at each of those, uh, places. Um, Whereas like, you know, you look at a company like Razer and Razer primarily only builds two and $3,000 laptops, right? That I feel like is a problem that I've solved a lot of times and have a, a fairly good handle on, you know, what the pain points there are and, and how to push those boundaries. Um, but, you know, bringing improvements to the experience, right? How do we get those, you know, more mainstream systems to be thinner or more powerful or have, you know, better ray tracing, um, or, you know, more AI, uh, horsepower, if you will. Um, how can we do that without removing them from the space in the market that they occupy? Yeah. I imagine that those are interesting and probably markedly different challenges for you to solve where on the high end you're thinking about what is the very very best performance and outcome that we can get and on the lower end you're thinking how do we get as close to that performance as possible with within the constraints that we have whether that's building materials or performance or or otherwise i don't i don't know how a laptop is built so i'm probably saying stuff that doesn't make any sense but Am I characterizing those kind of ends of the spectrum correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're very much on the right track. That 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 sounds that sounds like an interesting kind of headspace for you to be bobbing between. Obviously, having a lot more experience on that on that higher end. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think through the different customer challenges, um, and also you know how these challenges manifest themselves differently in different regions of the world, right? Um, what the average buyer in North America or Europe cares about is very different than what the average buyer in China uh, cares about, for example. And each of those are, are kind of huge geographical uh, swaths for us to kind of optimize around. And so it's always this balance, right? And then you have, you know, there's the entire other side of like, okay, what is it that we are building? What is it that we are capable of building? And how can we optimize that to kind of hit those various goals? Did you, did you ever build or what did you build as a kid? Cause you must've built, I mean, the very first thing you built wasn't a Razor laptop. I got to assume. No, um, I think it's, it was model cars. It was all of those like, you know, 3d snap together cars, usually not the ones that involved paint. I really didn't like working with paint. So it was all the ones that were like <laughs> injection molded plastic in the appropriate colors, right? Purple Plymouth Prowlers, yellow Volkswagen Beetles, like that kind of stuff. 
that makes that makes sense. Those at least come with a manual. I I, I don't imagine building a laptop from scratch comes with a, a how-to guide. <laughs> I I mean even Legos like I don't I don't usually like following the directions, right? Like they'll show you what the what the step is, and then they'll tell you how to get there. And I'm like, it's fine. I'll just I'll do it or I'll make it up, and it'll be fine. Um, drive some people nuts, but. <laughs> I'm not, like I'm not it. really good at following rules. I like it. Well, I actually did want to ask you about cars because you more than anyone I know, at least in my sort of contemporary age cohort, are into cars, which I think is super cool. So is that where your interest in cars started from, that, from those early builds or, or how did that develop? I think it started before that. Um... The story that I was told is that I could identify cars before I could read. And there was a time when my cousin was in Montreal looking at looking for a new car and had one of those like used car magazines. Like they used to call them like wheel deals. And I was at the time probably like two and a half, three years old. And I would be calling out the cars as he was flipping through the book. And then at some point he stopped and realized, wait, wait, you don't you don't know how to read. How do you know that this is a Ford Taurus or a Honda Accord or whatever? And I just had gotten used to like, when we're out on walks, like asking my dad what a certain car was. And I, I would just know the identifying features. So I think I've just always been attracted to that or attracted to the movement of cars from before I could consciously recognize that. Um, so I think I've just always been a car guy and you know, when I was a kid and people would be like, what do you, what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, my answer used to be a race car driver, but I think still time, from man. a very still time, hmm? there's still time. <laughs> uh, but at a very, very early age, I think I was marked to be an engineer, right? Following the family tradition. My dad's an engineer and my grandfather's an engineer. Uh, and so they were like, no, no, you have to build race cars. You can't, you you don't want to be a driver, right? You have to be a, more intellectual than that. So you be a race car engineer. So at four years old, I was a kid that was like, I'm going to be an automotive engineer. And that is in the end what my master's degree was in, right? I was a mechanical engineer in school. My capstone project was building an electric car. We took like a 2002 Honda Accord and we turned it into an electric. Um, and then my master's uh, thesis was like, a powertrain analysis of the Chevy Volt, which was brand new at the time. Um, so it was just this whole thing for me, right? Through uh, when I was a kid, through school, through right up until I spent some time in Detroit. And I was like, there is no earthly way you could get me to live here. <laughs> Don't say that. Do you, know where, do you know where Stanley's recording from? I, yeah, I see the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> no okay so that, that i mean it sounds like it's just been sort of an organic love of the automotive industry what how do you scratch that itch today i imagine you know having some expendable income has gotta gotta be play play money going going towards it in, in some form or fashion yeah i've so I was good through the first handful of years of my career. I just had, you know, the hand-me-down sedan from my dad that I, I drove. Um, and then at some point, I got restless, decided to buy a car to teach myself how to drive stick, which to that point, I knew how to do in theory and had driven a couple of friends' cars extremely poorly around a few city blocks. But like until you own one and drive one, for you know some amount of time you don't really know how to drive stick i feel like you just don't have the men uh like the the muscle memory so i bought a car to teach myself to drive stick and then after that i think i was just cycling through cars every year sometimes less than a year just it's became a problem i have i have two comments well one comment and one question on that my comment is learning to drive stick 
on the hills of San Francisco has got to be the worst idea or the worst place to learn how to drive a stick shift car. <laughs> oh my God. It was terrible. Um, I remember the first week I had it, uh, I drove, so I lived in, in the hate at the time and I was going to a workout at, um, Fort Mason, which is up and over the hill. And I got very lucky going over Pacific Heights. Uh, Like, I think I just hit all of the lights going up Franklin and I was totally fine. And then coming back, I was terrified of going up Goff because like people sit on your rear bumper. And I was like, that's like a great way for me to like just like drive backwards into somebody. So I took, I want to say Buchanan or like one of the, the streets going up from the marina through pack heights very steep and you have to stop on every block and i think i stalled it once or twice every single block going back up it was the most painful experience of my life <laughs> look that's why you, that's why you bought the car that's why you bought the car my exactly. my my question was how many cars do you think you've purchased and cycled through in the last five years, I want to say it's on the order of 15. That, that is a high number, but good. <laughs> it, it, it illuminates your, your love of cars, clearly. Yeah. And thankfully, I've been like, these are all, they all end up being kind of older used cars. And I've been good at reading market trends and buying cars that, aren't going to lose value. So I've managed to not lose money on any of them, which is good. I've, I haven't necessarily made money, but I haven't lost money, sure. which is what makes it sustainable, right? Sure. As soon as you start losing money on a habit or a hobby, then you're like, this is, you're going to reevaluate life choices. It becomes, becomes a, l- a little bit less, less doable over the long term. What, what's your, do you, do you have a dream car? I do. Um, so the car that was on my desktop wallpaper in college, like my computer wallpaper was, uh, the Porsche 911 GT3. Um, this just, it, you take a 911, you take all of the sound deadening and the rear seats out, you put in a race car motor and some race car suspension, but you leave in like the airbags and like the emissions equipment. And that's the GT3. I, I look forward to the day I can can get a ride in it with you. Uh, so I was very fortunate uh, during the pandemic and bought one. So the next time you are in San Francisco, you can have a ride. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! Dream dream realized. I love it. I love yes. it. Um, well, Vivek, this has been amazing. I'd like to end with uh, a question that I ask everyone which is how do you define a life well-lived? Yeah, it's interesting because I've, I've actually thought a lot about that one. Um, I've, I've obviously listened to most of the podcast so far, and so I've had some time to think about this. Um, I think for me, it's of potential realized. Um, And I think part of that comes back to my parents having come here in search of a better life for them um, and really a better future for their family. Um, They both came from a very, very small village in South India. Like this village doesn't have a bus stop kind of village. Um, You have to walk something like seven or eight kilometers to the nearest bus stop. So for them to to come here and be successful, they took huge risks and a ton of sacrifices along the way, right? Being so far away from family and things like that. And I think for me um, and my brother, and I I think a life well-lived is uh, living up to our potential to make the sacrifices that my parents made worth it 
right? Just, you know, honor them and the work that they have put in by living up to our potential. That's really, that's a really lovely answer and very different than ones we've heard before, but super meaningful. I really like that. And I'm sure if next week we had your parent, your parents on, they, they would say Vivek is living well beyond our, our wildest dreams. So, you know, kudos to you, man. Super excited to, super exciting to, to hear all of this stuff, even though we'll have to have a glossary for all of your engineering terms that I don't, don't know what they are, but you know, all that to say, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're living out your parents' wildest dreams, which is, which is pretty special. Yeah. Well, Stanley, tap in, tell me, tell me where, I, what, what I missed and feel free to give Vivek some shit for, uh, hating on, on Detroit. Well, I was actually going to say, Zip, when you come visit me, you can ride in my 2004 Jeep Cherokee that has like a 200,000 miles on it. So then you can compare. Hard to say which I'm looking forward to more. Um, so Vivek, you had mentioned at one point early that um, I think your quote was something like, you're good at math, but you couldn't write to save your life. But then I think your first job came because of your writing. So how did that unfold? I took my lumps through that one year of preparatory classes, I almost failed out of that year because I couldn't write to save my life. Um, but the English teacher that year was incredible. And she taught me kind of how to think about writing and how to um, form a critical uh, argument and how to, how to write uh, eloquently, distill ideas into words um, and kind of formulate that that into a into a body of work okay uh and then the other thing i wanted to ask you was uh the the laptop that you helped lead or led at razor looking back based on what you know now what's one thing that you would change in that laptop um i think for every year there was something slightly different uh the the one there was one year where the fan curve was off. There was one year where we should have upgraded the GPU but didn't. And then the last of the 14 inch line, I think for the year we made it, it was as close to perfect as I think you could be. Um, and I actually used that generation 14 inch that I think it was like the end of 2016. I used that until this summer. Like I can I, I love that thing so much. I was like, there is not a laptop on the market that is better than this until this year. <laughs> and what's the one this year? Razor? Uh, it is actually the, so they stopped making the 14 inch blade after that year. And then they brought it back uh, this summer with like a new everything. Right. So it's, you know, super thin, narrow bezel, everything. And it's in, Interestingly enough, the exact same thickness as the one that I last made. So I'm kind of like, <laughs> all, all this. And yes, it's more powerful, but like, really? Anyway. All right, fair enough. Uh, so the next section, if you've listened to the podcast, you know, it's called over, un, Overrated, Underrated. So I, we're going to throw something out and you tell us if you think it's overrated or underrated or appropriately rated. And so Josh and I came up with these. Um, driving a sports car appropriately rated electric cars underrated i Class. yeah i got my degree in them they are absolutely amazing so i can't wait for everyone to have one classroom learning depends on the classroom let's go with overrated real world learning or outside the class outside okay underrated that's where i did all of my learning (laughs) so can't hate this one's a shot in the dark ti83 programming 
Oh, so overrated. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, no, I had a TI-83. I only vaguely understood how to use it. I still only vaguely understand how to use it. I think my brother really got into calculator programming. I was just like, I just don't have time. Um, the Apple M1 processor. Ooh, I actually cannot comment about that. Okay. <laughs> um, and maybe you can't comment on the next one either, but the future of semiconductor design and manufacturing in the U.S. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm All not right. allowed to touch that one either. I'm sorry. Uh, high school. Appropriately rated. I don't know that I'm qualified to, to give a rating for that one, having not done it. Um, I don't think I lost anything by not doing high school, but I don't think I would have lost anything had I done it either. Right. I, I think a lot of very successful, very smart people go to high school and do just fine. Trucky. Overrated. Why? Um, well, overrated over long time scales, underrated or appropriately rated over short time scales. Um, I think it was a great place to be during the pandemic when you have a lot of space, a lot of outdoor open spaces. Um, I don't like cold weather. I don't do snow things. Uh, so there's this like entire, call it five month block of time where I'm just like, all I want to do is sit in front of the heater. Like if I could sit inside the heating duct, I would, um, or in the hot tub and that's it. Uh, but in the summer, it's amazing. As long as you don't mind not seeing non-white people and not eating any Asian food, it's fine. <laughs> uh finally the seattle seahawks oh my god do we have to god this is this season's i just oh my god geno smith i'm just i'm so over it i'm so over this season i i'm so glad that russell wilson's coming back and i'm glad that we have like an ironclad excuse for not making the playoffs but yeah <laughs> not rated is is what i'm hearing <laughs> just just shoot me now this is the rating we'll, we'll we'll write that one down as not rated for now vivek last last question we like to end uh with a, a good would you rather and we saved a, a pretty pretty tough one for you here at the end would you rather own a bugatti or go to space I think own a Bugatti. Um, partially because going to space sounds hard. Like it, it sounds like it requires a lot of training. And I think it would take me away from all of my friends for a very long time, which is, I think, what I did by moving to Truckee for a year. And I don't really want to do that again. So you're um, it's kind of like saying you've already been to space. <laughs> Some, yes. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm like, honestly, I don't really want to own a Bugatti either or a Ferrari or really any of those like super shouty cars. Like they just, I don't know. Like I just want an interesting, enjoyable car that no one's going to like look at me differently. Just an anonymous Porsche 911 GT something. You know, it just looks like every other 911, which if you're in the Bay, it feels like just go to Marin and it's like every third car is what it feels like, which I guess Marin's not super representative, um, but it was the closest I could get to anonymous. It's like, it's black. It's not even yellow. It's, it's really as close as I could get to anonymous. Well, I, I feel like we've come full circle to this anonymous versus standing out element but Vivek this has been awesome thank you so much for for making time for this really appreciate it man yeah this has been great thanks Josh thanks Stanley